You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westbca.com. Turn in your Bible to the book of Judges. We are now in Judges chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. We're getting into the, the core material of this interesting ancient book of the Old Testament people of God. I've enjoyed in recent weeks and months engaging with my, my wife and my oldest child, a 10-year-old boy, who are reading the uh, popular Harry Potter series books. These are books I had read myself years ago, and uh, I'm enjoying rereading them as uh, we're allowing our oldest son to read them. And I understand some people have objections to the substance of those books, and we're aware of that and are respectful of that view. And uh, we're careful as we allow our children to engage with this material, pointing out things that are objectionable. And yet at the same time, admiring, as I reread them, the author, J.K. Rowling, does a masterful job illustrating virtues of love, of loyalty and courage that she develops in her characters. And also what's beautiful about these stories is, well, it, they're just fun because you can't figure out what's going to happen next. It's almost impossible to predict how she will resolve the conflict, how she will deliver her characters from the plights and the uh, trials that they find themselves in. And as my wife and son try to predict what's going to happen, I'm just enjoying seeing how wrong they are as I already know the conclusion of the stories. Well, as we come to the book uh, of Judges, here, like in most books of the Bible, but I think it's very apparent in this, this text, God is the author God is the author of scripture. God is the author of life. And what we see in this story is God engaging with the ancient peoples of God, resolving their dilemmas, their crises, and coming in in very unexpected ways. Some people find objectionable things in the book of Judges. And as I've pointed out before, I think that people who step back from the content of Judges can oftentimes be blind to see their own messiness, and their own, own unresolved problems and tensions, and uh, fail to see that as then, as now, we rest and depend upon the mercy of God alone who sustains us uh, through the, the trials and tribulations and messiness uh, of this life. Well, as I go on to read in a moment about these three initial judges that we find in this book, I want you to think about, consider what it must have been like to be one of those ancient Israelites, perhaps living just a few generations after these historical events. It would be like for us looking back upon the great stories of the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Great World Wars, And imagine yourself a child hearing this for the first time or being in a crowd of children who are hearing this story from a master storyteller, a a grandfather who has told these stories hundreds of times. 
to enjoy these legends, these true historical legends about very flawed people who have an awesome God that never failed to come through for them when they needed him most. I begin reading Judges 3, verse 7. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram Naharaim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Aram, into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Malachites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who had carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, Quiet, and all his attendants left him. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, He must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Sirah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. 
At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud came Shamgar, son of Anath, who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. He, too, saved Israel. This is God's amazing, unchangeable word. Let us pray. Father, we marvel at these stories of heroes, of faith, of power, of intervention, and we pray that you would give us a heart of wisdom to understand and apply these things tonight. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I recall one of my football coaches, I can't remember if it was 8th or ninth grade, who would always tell us, boys, find a way to win. Of course, we would do all of our prep work in the weight room and the practice fields, but when it came down to the battle of downs and yardage and turnovers and so forth, at the end of the day, we had to find a way to win. Renowned owner of the Oakland Raiders, Al Davis, has a famous slogan, which he made the title of his book, Just Win, Baby. When I was a swim team coach years ago, I used to love the strategy of trying to maximize the amount of points that my swimmers could win in a meet. I'd load kids up on relays. I'd switch swimmers around. I would try to exploit any weaknesses I saw in our opponents in the hopes that we could win the swim meet. Well, winning isn't everything when it comes to sports and other competitions. But when it comes to the kingdom of God, winning is very, very important. And as we come to this story, as we enter into the meaty section of the book of Judges, what we find here is a wide variety, a, a diverse account of the way in which God delivers his people, and they win over their enemies. We see in our first judge, our first example, we might call Othniel the ideal judge. And then we come to Ehud, who is a quite unusual judge. And then in the last judge, Shamgar, who seems unlikely. A wide range of various deliverers that God raises up for Israel. To communicate to us, I believe, that God is not bound to any of our preconceived notions about how and when we shall be saved. He is the author of life. Life is the grand drama, this unfolding mystery in which God does the unimaginable. And so as we enter into these glorious tales of ancient Israel, I believe we catch a glimpse of the heart of God who will go to great lengths to accomplish the salvation for his people, oftentimes in most unexpected ways. In weeks past, and especially last week, you heard from Pastor Light that Judges has a repeated cyclical pattern. We find Israel falling into sin, 
committing betrayal against the Lord. We see God judging, punishing Israel for their sin until the point that Israel cries out, <clears throat> asking for relief and deliverance. And so God, in his grace, responds by raising up a deliverer. And lastly, Israel enjoys peace, and the land has rest for a time. I believe the family likeness of ancient Israel comes close to home in the modern church and in our very own lives. We are a people just like our forefathers who are given to folly, who are easily seduced into idolatrous ways. And so I believe that Judges tonight exhorts us that in our weakness to not turn from God when we feel God disciplining us, our calling is to cry out to him, to plea for deliverance from whatever it is strangles us, the bondage of our sin, overwhelming circumstances, great trials that threaten to undo us. And as we cry out to God and plea for his mercy, we're called to wait upon his sovereign intervention, trusting that he will deliver us and restore our peace. Well, after the long summary series we see in chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3 of Judges, we come to the first case in the character of Othniel. Now, we have heard of him before. He shows up in summary form in the book of Joshua. And you'll recall from chapter 1 of Judges, there's a brief encounter uh, where we have the, the hero and romantic story of Othniel winning himself a bride from the great warrior Caleb. And uh, we learn that Othniel is not only the nephew of Caleb, but, of course, becomes his son-in-law, and so matches uh, the, the hero with his own great deeds of valor. Othniel is a worthy man. And unlike the other major judges that we have in this book, he is not presented with any flaws. He does not have the weakness of faith that characterizes Barak and Gideon. He doesn't have the impulsive, destructive tendencies of Jephthah or Samson. No, we see in Othniel a kind of George Washington figure. He's the ideal starting place by which everyone afterwards will be judged and compared to. And so what we want to do is, is look at this context to see what type of model he provides to give us, give us insight into the way God works through these judges. Now, the passage opens up with a grave negative assessment that we will see and hear over and over again throughout this book. That the, the spiritual assessment of, of Israel is very weak. It says that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God, which means they were failing at their, their terms of the covenant. God had been faithful, but Israel was not. They lacked loyalty to Yahweh. They were turning to other gods, the false gods of the land of Canaan. Mentioned here is Baal, the great storm god, whose ongoing presence and power was left with the remnant of the people that Israel had failed to wipe out and exterminate from the land. 
And so we find Israel worshiping Baal and the Asherah, who Asherah and their uh, pagan uh, idolatry was the wife of the chief god, Ale. And both of these gods are fertility gods. The pagans, in their delusional mindset, believed that they had to stimulate these gods by their own behaviors to provoke them and plead with them to provide rain so that the crops would grow, so they would have a good wheat and barley harvest, so that they would have olive oil and so forth. And to stimulate these gods, they would exercise the pagan practice of cult prostitution. And so what we see here in this pagan practice is people thinking they can coerce and manipulate the gods to get what they want. And sadly, the Israelites, the ancient people of God, are seduced into this flawed way of thinking. Failing to believe that Yahweh was the one and only true God who not only delivered them out of Egypt, but who would continue to provide for them everything that they would need. Rain, food, shelter. Now, God had warned long ago, through Moses and Joshua, that such betrayal would have grave consequences. Their behavior, their actions would provoke the wrath of God. Why? Because God is a jealous God. He is holy. He cannot tolerate rivals. The worship of false gods and the consequent immorality that flows naturally out of worshiping things that are not God. The Lord had redeemed Israel to be holy, to be set apart, to be different from the nations. They were his exclusive right. And so like a husband who grows furious and jealous over a wife's infidelity, the Lord rushes into action and burns with great indignation. And Israel will reap what she has sown. And so her punishment is that God will subject Israel to military and economic control of a foreigner. And notice what the word says. It says that he sold them into the hands of this foreign king. I believe the language and context indicates that Israel is acting like animals, like brute beasts. They are running after false gods, and so they are being treated like animals, sold like cattle. The Lord's discipline can be severe and most dangerous to us when he gives us over to our sin, that we might experience the tyranny of the world and the devil and the service of our sin. And the reason God does this is in the hope that we will come to our senses. Like the prodigal son who realizes he had it much better when he was serving his father and not this foreigner and is compelled to return to him. So Israel will be subjected to this foreigner for eight years. Think about that, eight years. That's like two presidential terms in America. And as we think about Israel's punishment and their exile, their under uh, subjection of others, 
as I thought about this, I've thought about how many believers have expressed lament of our plight, our situation as Americans, and looking at the apparent decline of morality and political decline in our nation. Can you just imagine what it would be like to fall under control of a complete foreigner, a total pagan, somebody who doesn't share any of our constitutional or moral or spiritual values? This king that Israel was subjected to was not elected. He did not share their beliefs. And so they are in exile. They're completely cut off. I think likewise we can learn a lesson from here that we too, who in a sense are living in Babylon, living in a day and age in which we await the return of Christ, we have to remember that God is sovereign. It is God who raises up rulers. It is God who brings them down. And I, I'm quite convinced that we as a people basically get what we deserve. Sometimes better, but never worse. And so I think as we learn from the ancient peoples of God, our calling, as we, our heart cry as we travel in Babylon, is to first lament over our own sins, even as we go on to ask God to deliver us and our age from the sins that blight us. In verse 9, it says that Israel cried out to God, and God responds by raising up a deliverer. God did not pout. God was not reluctant in his deliverance. Rather, with graciousness and great power, he gives to Othniel the, the right as judge and the power to overthrow this enemy. This deliverer, Othniel, would save Israel. Notice how he does it. Verse 10 says that, to, to, says that the Spirit of the Lord descended upon Othniel. So it was by the power of the Spirit that Othniel became a judge and led Israel into war. And the text goes on to give credit to God, who gave the enemy into his hands. God brings this enemy king and delivers him on a silver platter, enabling Othniel and his army to overpower them. So they won, not by might, not by their own power, but by the Spirit of God and are rewarded and blessed with 40 years of peace. Perhaps that was the remaining length of Othniel's life until he died. Occasionally, in the middle of the night, I'll hear a loud thud and the cry of a two-year-old who has fallen out of his bed. And being a good dad, I wipe the grog out of my face and I will run to my son and pick him up and comfort him and put him back in bed. Such is the response of a father, a non-begrudging father. And I can't say that I'm always as quick and sometimes can be a bit begrudging or lazy. But we know that our Heavenly Father does not begrudge us. Our cries to Him do not fall on deaf ears. He is ready, willing, and eager to come to our aid to meet us in our time of need, to provide our deliverance. 
And so our first application tonight is to think about how quick, how eager are you, how ready are you to cry out to him when you're struggling, when you are frustrated, when you are battling with sin, how often do you insist on working it out on your own? Oh, no, God, I've got this one under control. We do this in our pride. We do this in our negligence, and we are reminded from the book of Judges that the Lord would beckon us to come to him, to stop striving in our flesh, stop trying to own and control our battles emotionally, spiritually, relationally. But all of these matters are worthy, and we are encouraged to bring them before the Lord to cry out to him. And so we see this this outline established in the book of Judges of how we are to respond when we're facing various oppositions, when we are struggling with the tyranny of sin. We must cry out to God. We must make our plea with him, for he is not begrudging to save, though his discipline forces us to feel the consequences of our sin, to show us our folly, only to provoke us to return to him to cry out to him, to wait for his Holy Spirit and by by his Spirit fight our battles because the battle ultimately is the Lord's. Let's consider now our second judge, Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite. As we look at the occasion of his rise to Authority and his position as a judge. We see that, yes, once again, verse 12, once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so this time the Lord gives them into the hands of Eglon, the king of Moab, and they suffer under his tyranny for 18 years before it seems they finally cry out to God for their deliverance. Now, it appears that Ehud is some kind of ambassador. He is some kind of representative of Israel. His is the humble task of bringing tribute to Eglon. Now, it seems apparent from the text that, uh, that Ehud was known to Eglon. This was not a first-time event. Um, Eglon seems to recognize Ehud. He places a kind of naive trust in this ambassador from Israel. And Ehud seems to be playing his part well, earning the trust of this foreign king, similar to the way David will live amongst the Philistines and gain the trust of their monarch. But while he is exercising his ambassadorial duties, Ehud is sizing up the situation. He's identifying the weaknesses of Eglon's administration. He discovers that their guards are slack in identifying potential threats and dangers to their king. Ehud chooses to exploit the situation. He fashions for himself a dagger, perhaps no more than 18 inches long, and conceals it under his garment, placing it under his, on his right thigh, which is what a left-handed man would do, and so seems to slip past Uh, the security guards, as he goes into the presence of Eglon. 
Now, there's lots of little details in this particular story. Othniel's story is kind of broad and general, generic, kind of it establishes the pattern. Ehud, the story goes into a lot of details. It gives us all these beautifully grotesque details. It comments on how Eglon was a very fat man. And we don't know exactly why it chooses to tell us this other than that becomes a part of the gore of the uh, assassination of him later in the story. One commentator I consulted thinks that ancient Israelites would have found this hilarious, that this was the author's intent to poke fun at and begin to set up the humiliating fall of this foe who had so humiliated Israel. And so while we may be grossed out by the story, ancient Israelites would have loved it and indulged the details in a way that uh, comforted them in seeing how God had come to their aid in the midst of their great sorrow and oppression. Well, Ehud is very deliberate in his plan. On this occasion, he actually departs from the presence of the king. He sends his men on forward, and he says when he comes to the idols this uh, particular location near the border of the two nations, he turns back and goes back into the presence of the king alone under the pretense that he has a secret message from God. Now, this is part of Ehud's plan. He obviously thinks he'll be less of a threat or the enemy will sense less of a threat if he is alone. And once the king Eglon hears of Ehud's intention to share with him this story, the king is intrigued, and he commands all of his servants and guards to leave his presence, that he might receive this oracle of this pretend prophet alone. And with great pomp and great seriousness, Eglon rises in the presence of Ehud to receive this message of God, and receive this message he does all 18 inches of doom plunged into his belly. And from there out, we see this this grotesque listing of details of how the blade went in. It came out the back. And there's a textual variant here. There are certain translations that get even more graphic, saying that not only the blade came out, but excrement came out of the man. And we find these details that are rather grotesque, But to the original audience, this would have been part of the humiliating downfall of this great foe. And as I reflected upon this story, I thought about the sad fate of other enemies of God. We find graphic details in the book of Acts about the death of Judas, who not only hanged himself, but fell headlong and whose body uh, bloated and burst, we see in the death of Herod in Acts chapter 12, the, the detail that he was eaten up by worms. And so when we come to these perhaps bizarre passages of Scripture, it's a reminder to us that God vindicates his people. He triumphs over his enemies. And those who have been humiliated by the enemies of God will be comforted by the intervention of Almighty God. 
we can only imagine this original audience of Israelites laughing at the arrogant naivete of Eglon. The, the awkward delay that goes on amongst his guards and security, that very delay that enabled Ehud to make his escape. The climax of the story, when the servants finally break into the, the summer chamber on the roof of the palace and find their lord lying there dead, having failed their king in their most important duty to protect his life. As we compare this story, as we look at Ehud versus Othniel, we see a couple interesting differences. When Othniel defeats his foes, he does, he does so by God's overpowering force. Ehud, by contrast, outwits his opponent. Othniel prevails from a position of strength. Ehud from a position of weakness. Othniel is a revered general, where Ehud is a heroic ambassador turned assassin. Some people question the the ethical behavior of Ehud. But what is clear is that he is God's agent of doom on the people of God's enemies and God's agent of deliverance to lead God's people into dignity and freedom whereby they can serve the Lord. Well, it turns out that Ehud's grisly, daring deed is a diversion. It's an attack at the heart of the Moabites to throw them into a great panic. He is the knight who is disguised as a pawn who slips his way across the chessboard to attack the vulnerable king. Checkmate. You are done. And so, having made his escape, he blows the trumpet, and the men of Ephraim come to his Uh, come to his aid and follow him, and they cast a net, cast a trap upon the Moabites in their territory and strike down 10,000 men and go on to enjoy a good 80 years, perhaps suggesting that Ehud was a young David-like youth. Those of us who are bothered by the grotesque imagery we find in the story need to be reminded that sometimes desperate times recall, call for desperate measures. It took the death of the firstborn sons of Egypt for Pharaoh to concede to letting Israel go. We see grave exploits by David and his mighty men. We find all kinds of suspect characters throughout the scriptures. Matthew, in his genealogy of Jesus, includes several women of suspect reputation. The angels announcing the birth of Jesus appeared to shepherds, those who were unfit for any other type of work. Jesus in his life and his ministry consorts with sinners, prostitutes, tax collectors, all of whom loved him. Yes, Ehud is unusual. He is peculiar. He's even grotesque. But that is the way God delivers his people. And that, in fact, is the very way of the cross. Peculiar, 
grotesque, unheard of, offensive to the ears of many, this unusual manner by which God will redeem sinners by the grisly death of his own son. This unexpected and unlikely Savior is foreshadowed by these characters that we see here in Judges. And as we see with our last judge, Shamgar. It appears that he, Shamgar, is an unlikely judge, first of all, because of his name. Many scholars question whether Shamgar was even an Israelite. His father, by the name of Anath, the same name as a pagan Canaanite goddess, the goddess of love and war. And yet, this unlikely judge strikes down 600 Philistines with an ox goad, a tool that would have been about eight feet long, a pointed end on one, and a club on the other. God uses an ox goad, a dagger, J.L.'s hammer, Gideon's horns and torches, a woman's millstone, Samson's jawbone of a donkey, and ultimately a Roman execution method to provide salvation for his people. The text on Shamgar gives the impression that he acted alone, though we are not certain of that. And yet his mighty deed anticipates the heroics of Samson, of David and his mighty men, all of whom saved Israel. Jonathan, the son of Saul, will go on to say that God will save, whether by many or by few. God delivers every which way, whatever it takes. God can save by the ideal judge, the Honorable Othniel, who leads his troops into battle and overpowers them. Othniel anticipates the flawless, ideal judge that we have in Jesus Christ. Our ideal, sinless Savior, who overwhelms and overthrows and ransacks the house of the devil, setting his people free. God also saves in the unusual way, tricking and even outwitting his enemies. God is shrewd to those who are shrewd. The wicked fall into their own traps. And like Ehud, our Redeemer is the one who outwitted the cunning one, beating him at his own game. His victory over the cross gave him victory over the grave in an unanticipated, an unexpected manner of redemption, unknown to the world. This grisly deed of the cross turned the very curse of the law on its head. It was Jesus who paid the ransom that you and I could not afford. He offered up his body to torment, and by his stripes you and I are healed. And lastly, without army, and a mere foreigner to the people of God, like Shamgar, Jesus went into battle single-handedly. He is the one-man show. Though he could have summoned 12 legions of angels, he took the lonely road 
to Golgotha and drank alone the cup of God's almighty wrath. You can imagine the children of Israel longing to hear these stories of great heroes of old over and over again. We imagine boys and girls crowding around the great storyteller. Tell us about Ehud again as he indulges with new and fresh details overlooked before. These stories grotesque to us, but beautiful and redemptive to the people of God. Likewise, we, with childlike wonder, must never grow tired of hearing the story of the cross. Though grotesque to the world, it is beautiful and redemptive to our eyes and ears. Jesus is our ideal deliverer. He is unusual. He is the unlikely and unexpected redeemer. And may you and I never cease to marvel at the wonder of the cross, the grace of God who will go to any great lengths to save his people, to be a prized possession for his very own. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this great salvation that we have through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Impress these things upon our hearts. Lead us and guide us in the way of the cross, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.